Kia ora and welcome. This is the New Zealand Wine Podcast. I'm Boris Lamont. Thanks for joining in for this episode where we're speaking with Mark Sweet, author of Wine, Stories from the Hawke's Bay. Hawke's Bay being on the east coast of New Zealand. If you'd like to know more about Mark's book, just look up winestorieshb.co.nz. We'll also have the link up against the podcast. But right now, let's have a chat with Mark. Well, hi, Mark. Uh, thanks for coming. Nice to have you in the studio with us today. Yeah, pleasure, Boris. Yes, and so um, you've written a book about Hawke's Bay wine. I have. And so what's your journey, Mark, to getting to that place of, of wanting to write a book about uh, the wine industry in the Hawke's Bay of New Zealand? Oh, it started uh, about seven years ago when I started writing the history of wine in Hawke's Bay for a magazine called Bay Buzz. So I wrote... I think five chapters of that from the beginning up until um, sort of the Gimlet Gravels story. Uh, so I had that background, and then the editor of Bay Buzz, Tom Belford, and his wife Brooks persuaded me that we should do a big glossy book. Um, so that's how the project started, really. So it started in January of 2015. So Bay Buzz was is a local publication? Yeah, Bay Buzz is a, a glossy magazine which we produce every two months. Um, it's, um, ish, we really concentrate on environmental and social justice issues. Okay, of the Hawke's Bay area. Yeah, yep. in Hawke's Bay. Mm-hmm. And um, we've got a, there's a web page and um, it's really interactive um, and with an incredibly energetic expat American, right. um, Tom Belford. So, so out of doing some things in that around wine, came the idea to actually do the do the book. Yeah, I'd done the stories um, about yep. seven years ago over a two year period, and then sort of five years lapsed, and this idea that we'd do a book was always there. Yeah, and they finally decided let's put the energy and get a team together. So it was very much a team effort in the sense that we had a coordinator, Susie Devonshire, who was had the most unenviable job of coordinating between myself, the designer Max Parks, and the photographer Tim Whitaker. But over a nine month period. It was really stressy because I had to produce the book in chapters ready for the photographer and for Max. And so we never really got a chance at the end to review the book in its entirety. But I also should mention um, uh, we had really good um, editorial as well with Jane Parkin, who's one of the best editors in the country in mm-hmm. Wellington. It was fantastic to work with her. Right, right, right. From, right from the beginning. And so is this the first book for you? No, um, I recreated myself as a writer after selling Pacifica Restaurant, mm-hmm. which I started up in 2000. So I sold that on in 2006, 2007. And is that in the Bay as well? Yes, that's yep. in Napier. Mm-hmm. Um, I sold it to a guy called Jeremy Ramaker, who had since um, um, just improved the quality of the food um, to the point where he, for the second year this year, um, was chosen as New Zealand P- Provincial Restaurant of the Year. Wow. So he's absolutely top. A great cool. gift to Nate Pierce, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah, well, that's something to note down. Yeah, so I recreated myself in the writer because it was something I'd always wanted to do. And I had a sort of bit of a revelation on my 50th birthday that if I didn't do this, I'd probably end up a bitter and twisted old man. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you had to try it out. Yeah, I did that. And I went to um, the Fittiera, um, 
creative writing course for a year, mm-hmm. and then I was really blessed to get um, a writing scholarship mentored in a program called Te Papa Tupu, mm-hmm. which was um, funded by um, Te Puna Kōkere and Huia Publications in Creative New Zealand. And from that, I produced a novel, which is called Zumao, and it, um, it did really well. It was... Um, Trans, uh, it was um, adapted for radio, written by read by George Hunnery, really brilliantly, right. and um, you know it was over 10, 10 weeks on Morning Report. Yeah, um, no, Catherine Ryan's show, whatever that's called. Oh yeah, nine till noon yeah. or something. Yes. So my love is novels, of is fiction writing. Mm-hmm. So when it came to writing this book, I really looked upon it as the way you might write fiction. Right. Okay. So you were you were looking for the the stories. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And, and and you're happy with how that came out? Um, yes, yes, I am happy with the result. Um, when I, Because I looked at the early history, starting in 1851 with the St Mary's Order, um, who were the pers- first to plant vines in Hawke's Bay, um, and then looked at the history right through the <clears throat> 150 years or so, I saw that there was something here that was very like a really good novel. It's sort of called The Hero's Journey. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Wars is a really good example of okay. The Hero's Journey. Yeah. It's, a, it's, um, it's all based on Arthurian legend, really. And it's very simple. It's about things start off really well, people living happily, and then stuff happens. And they are challenged, and they have obstacles to overcome. And that's how the characters are really honed. Mm-hmm. How they perform with these these obstacles to overcome, and then there's a sort of third part of the book where um, they they find their energy or find their solutions to the problems, and then the last part is they bring back the knowledge that they've learnt through their struggles yep. to create a new life, a better life than they started off with. Right, right, and that really is the story of Wine and Hawke's Bay. Okay, and, and in New Zealand to a huge extent, and, and passing <laughs> those learnings and that knowledge on to the the next generation of uh, winemakers. Yes, well, in that sort of historic context, what happened in Hawke's Bay, which happened in many other places in New Zealand, that the first people who made wine made very good wine in the European tradition. So in Hawke's Bay we had people like, well, it started with the St Mary's Order, who were French, and of course they came to Hawke's Bay and planted in 1851, and their wine was... First and foremost, apparently, for the altar, a sacramental wine. But, of course, they made wine because they were French and they had wine with every meal. It was Mm. part of their tradition. And they made some very good wines, and that's on record. um, The French ambassador to New Zealand in the 1880s, a guy called um, Geoffrey de Arbans, sent bottles to a the Paris exhibition, okay. where they won silver medals, wow. and there were other visitors to the mission vineyards in the 1870s. There was a a party from Lincolnshire who were pastoralists and horticulturalists, um, sort of scouting, I think, for land to um, immigrate. And they mentioned that there were many grape varieties, and they were producing fine wines. Mm. Mm. And then, and we had other. There were other producers like Henry Tiffin, 
an extraordinary man. Apparently, the story goes that he lunched with the Bethams in the Wairapa. Now, Betham can be regarded as one of the founders of the wine industry. He he inherited thousands of acres. He travelled in France. He returned with a French wife who was really interested in wine. And he set up a model winery. And Tiffin apparently lunched with him as a 71-year-old and was so impressed he set up his own vineyard. By the time he died 10 years later, he had built state-of-the-art winery with the biggest planting of grapes in New Zealand. Mm. And then there was Bernard Chambers as well at Tamata Estate. And then <clears throat> after producing these great wines... Um, the Prohibition Movement and the Temperance League, sort of extremely powerful in New Zealand. And for about a 30-year period, all that was produced really mostly was fortified wines. So when are we talking? What, what, um, what sort of... Um, sort of probably the Prohibition era, you, you could say, was at its height during the First World War. Okay. And there was a referendum in New Zealand whether we should be totally alcohol-free. Mm-hmm. And the referendum was won and passed by the Temperance League. Right. But the, <clears throat> the soldiers still overseas, 48,000 of them, overturned the vote. Almost to a man, they voted that they wanted to return to New Zealand and have <laughs> yeah. the right to drink alcohol. Yeah. So that was overturned. <laughs> Um, But that period, which I call the Dark Ages in the book, Mm. really went right through the 50s, the early 60s it started to change. So so it lingered on, maybe not so sort of hard and fast in legislation, but but maybe in um, people's attitudes or what was accepted or not, or what could be done? There was always... There, was, there were always people who had the tradition of drinking fine wines. So the mission con- continued to produce a hock and um, claret, but the vast majority of the production was fortified wines. I can't quite remember the stat, but it's around 90% mm-hmm. of all wine produced was fortified, port, mm. ports and sherries. Yeah. Um, after the Second World War, or during the Second World War, returned servicemen came back with a taste for drinking real wine, mm. having served in Italy and France. Yep. And also after the Second World War, a lot of European immigrants came to New Zealand, Czechoslovakian, uh, Czechoslovakian, Hungarian, um, with a tradition of wine. Yeah, and many of these immigrants um, sort of entered the wine industry, and there are some really notable people who I can mention later, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But just to tell you the the hero's the hero's journey or this this story of a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then we went through a renaissance. Started in the seventies, perhaps, perhaps earlier, um, when the palate or the introduction of wines to the New Zealand palate um, started to be in favour of the still wines and not the fortifieds. And that, uh, a lot can be said about that period. But then 
that was the Renaissance. And then, of course, by the 1980s, we were getting real investment into the wine industry. And that part of the book I called The Flourishing. So we mm-hmm. had, in the beginning, the Dark Ages, the Renaissance, and the Flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And we we still part of that... Um Part of that stage now, do you think the flourishing? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. The yeah. flourishing is certainly has happen, happening, and I mean, the, the skill of New Zealand winemakers is without doubt. The wine we produce is of international quality. Um, you've probably heard of these blind tastings of New Zealand Bordeaux style um, reds, um, sort of blind tasted against the best of Bordeaux. And there's some really famous examples of it in the last few years in Singapore, Tokyo, London, where, you know, four Hawke's Bay um, reds have been put up against four Bordeaux. The Bordeaux costing over $1,000 a bottle. Hawke's Bay wine's under 100 And Hawke's Bay wines have credited really, really well. Mm. Mm. Beat the Bordeaux. Yeah. So we, we can make some of the best Bordeaux style. Except winemakers hate that. Too. That's yeah, why. well, yeah, that's right. They that's just right, blended reds. A, yes, yeah, so yeah, it's, your, yeah. it's your Cab Sav, Merlot, Pinot, um, Cabernet Franc yeah. blends, yeah. And just going back then, what about Hawke's Bay's um, sort of relative position in New Zealand uh, for early winemaking? Was it one of the leading regions for for winemaking in New Zealand? Was it one of the sort of earlier regions to actually think that they could um, make a good go of it? Yeah, it was one of the earliest, but it wasn't the earliest. The mm-hmm. earliest was um, in the Bay of Islands. Ah, okay. Um, Which is uh, north of Auckland, for those listeners that are uh, okay. familiar. Yeah, and um, the Auckland region. But in, in 1895, um, the Seddon government invited a guy called Romeo Brigato to visit New Zealand. He um, was a viticulturalist. He, had, he was Croatian, um, which was you know, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire there. He was really well-educated in wine, uh, both as a viticulturalist and a winemaker. Mm-hmm. And he, he, in his tour, did say, quote, the Hawke's Bay province is, in my opinion, the most suitable for growing vines I have visited. Mm. Um, and his, his seminal paper... Um, I think wine growing in New Zealand um, still stands today, um, and he recognised he recognised the areas that would be really good for growing wine throughout the whole country. Started in Otago, mm-hmm. and he went through the whole country. He was also the first to to see phylloxera in some greenhouses in Auckland, and, oh. and warned mm-hmm. that this this was a disease that could really damage. And as it did, of course. Mm. So yeah, Hawke's Bay was recognised very early on mm. as mm. Um, as as well. He said the premier place to grow wine yeah. in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose you know the, the longevity of um, yeah, internationally, New Zealand has a very young wine industry. But um, uh, in our perspective, the longevity of the wineries, such as some of the ones you've mentioned, like Mission and Tomata, the fact that they're still around. Um, and still doing very well, um, is sort of testament to that, isn't it? That um uh, Yes, it is. And let's not forget Henry Tiffin. Um, he, did, he died childless. T- Tiffin was one of the few people in the book, few people whose stories to me were really sad. 
I mean, Tiffin was incredibly entrepreneurial. He introduced tobacco, flax, hemp to Hawke's Bay. Mm-hmm. He, he, um, he experimented with food processing, etc. He was a really energetic man. He was also a surveyor and set out, set out the um, Havelock North and Clive. And so if you've ever been to Havelock North, the roads are in the shape of a Union Jack. So he was a patriotic oh. man. <laughs> <laughs> and he was incredibly energetic. But the story of, I suppose, the sadness of his life was that he married twice and both his wives died in childbirth. And I think okay. after his second wife died in childbirth, he gave up. Right. And so- put his energy into his businesses. But that just struck me as a really yeah, yeah. sad thing to happen to a man. So what, what then happened to his estate? It was slowly split up. Um, um, and his daughter Amelia, his, his um, niece Amelia, uh, left most of the land to the church, to the Methodist church. Right. And then it was disposed of. Yeah. But right. his, his, he still lives on, really, in his association with... Um, Tom McDonald, who then became, um, who, who ran McWilliams Winery in Hawke's Bay, mostly mm-hmm. making fortifieds, but mm-hmm. making some very good um, red wines as well. He's, you know, regarded as the father of red wine in Hawke's Bay mm-hmm. um, during the 50s, 40s and 50s. But the land that he occupied was was originally Tiffin's land. Ah, so okay. Tiffin do, does live on in yes. that extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, Rod McDonald, is he related to Tom? No, Rod's no? no relation to Tom. Okay. No, Tom, Tom again, Tom didn't have sons. He had two daughters. Right. And um, he was a man of his time and assumed his daughters wouldn't want to be winemakers. Right. Yeah. And that's why, that's one of the reasons he said that he sold up and became the manag- managing director of McWilliams wines, right, right. who were the biggest winemakers in Hawke's Bay for years, ah, okay. Many, the whole country, biggest yeah. in New Zealand. And um, <clears throat> not around anymore, as, as that no, name? No, they're Australian, mm. it's from the McWilliams Australian um, family, mm-hmm. and they were the ones who set up the winery. No, they don't exist anymore, that mm. brand's gone. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And um, what other sort of stories sort of really caught your attention um, in, in doing the book? Were there, um, any, were there any standouts? It sounds like, you know, you know from talking to you previously, that there's, you know, there's a lot of stories. Um, were there sort of any, any, particular, any particular standouts? Well, I've, men- I've mentioned um, Romeo Brigato, mm. and I, maybe it's the novelist in me, um, but I'm really attracted to, you know, stories that aren't so jolly. Mm-hmm. Um, he put in so much effort. Um, in the sense that he introduced um, or was responsible for a lot of the um, wine importation from Europe to graft onto Phylloxera free American vines. Mm -hmm. So the the way they overcame Phylloxera was to to graft. And so, you know, the Hermitage Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Melbeck, um, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and the whites, Riesling, Pinot Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, were all um, wines that are grapes that I don't, I'm not saying that Brigado is responsible for coming to New Zealand, but that's what he worked with. Mm. And he was a great winemaker, and his skills 
um, were were recognised at the time. Um, he was the government viticulturalist at Kaitakafata uh, mm-hmm. um, in the viticultural division of the Department of Agriculture. But uh, again, with prohibition and public sentiment and the politics from Wellington, that was disbanded in 1909. And... He left New Zealand a short time later, um, a really disappointed man. He wasn't valued. Well, he was valued within the wine community. He used to hold seminars or weekend workshops at Tekafara. Mm. And um, they put on special trains from Auckland with hundreds of people right. um, from the Auckland wine growing range going mm. down to listen to this man who mm. was an expert. And, yeah, he was just such an expert. And he was really re- respected in the profession. Mm. But because of the politics, um, his his government job was really wound down. He was li- left with very little um, sort of people to assist him. He left New Zealand. And, um, yeah, it's an enduring sadness that he immigrated to Canada. And in 1912, he took his own life. Oh. So he's 55 years old. Mm, mm. Um, and obviously pretty embittered mm. by his experience in mm. New Zealand of not being appreciated. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. Mm. But it has a legacy that lives on. I think there's an event. Uh, wine event uh, named after. Oh, him, look, isn't the, it? he is. Uh, his legacy does live on. He's um, there's the Brigada Conference mm-hmm. and the New, right. New Zealand Wine Institute really honours him. Um, but again, it's the novelist in me. I think yeah. that, that is attracted to, <laughs> yeah. to yeah. The, the you know the story the, of a the man's tragedy. struggle and yeah. then his loss. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so, any others? Well, another person who really attracted me was Dennis Kasher. Mm-hmm. Um, Dennis Kusher's story is, is, yeah, really heartfelt. He was a refugee in the sense from Hungary. Um, he was extremely well qualified. Again, he had, he had studied at um, Convenus uh, University in Budapest, mm-hmm. and he also studied in Montpellier in, um, in Paris. Um, his family uh, fell victim to the Holocaust and his parents died in a concentration camp but he managed to escape and in 1950 he emigrated to New Zealand and um, I'm not the only person who really regards him Keith Stewart in his um, excellent book Chances and Visionaries um, dedicated the book to Dennis Kasher Um, Kasha first worked um, at the Viticultural Research Station at, in Tekafata, and um, then later he was employed to. And, and during that time, I must mention, he made some really, really fine wines. Um, there's a fantastic story told by Frank Thorpe, where he was um, at a dinner in Auckland, and the host presented a masked bottle. Um, and Thorpe sort of might have been a French or white Burgundy, and then followed by a bottle of 1950 uh, Grand Cru Chardonnay. And and Thorpe mentioned, although the latter masked bottle wasn't quite as good as the French Chardonnay, it was 
a family likeness and unmistakable and a really good wine. Well, that wine was made by Dennis Kasher. Mm. And Dennis Kasher, I think, can be credited with being the first person to make um, <clears throat> the modern-style Chardonnay in, okay. in New Zealand. In New Zealand. I, I'm, I mean, a lot of the wine experts will disagree sure. with me, but hey, that's yeah. what this is about. Eh? Yeah. yeah, no, that's right. And it, So did, um, winery, was what, what was the name uh, of his winery? Well, he, that, at that stage when he was making that, he, mm. um, he was uh, working for the government research station at Takafara. Oh, okay. So yeah, that, so he so, was employed right. by the government and, st- yep. and still making wines. Right. And then there's, there's another great character in the New Zealand wine story, which is Ian Clark. He, he, works, for, um, he works with George Fistonich at Villa Maria. They've been friends forever. And um, he remembers tasting a 1951 um, bottle of, and he said it was in a hock bottle with one of those old garden tags on it. And... Um, and he remembers that being a fantastic wine made by Kasha. Right. But then Kasha left and um, worked for McWilliams Wine mm. as a winemaker, and he can be credited with producing Bacano and Crestador, which older older drinkers will remember. There was a bit sort of Malathurgo blend. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Malathurgo at that time, we're talking um, 60s here, mm. Um, was by far the biggest grape grown in yes. New Zealand. Yes. Um, but I suppose the, the, the Kasha story to me is as tragic a game because he so wanted to make these fine wines, and he did, but most of his time was spent making the blended wines because that was what... Um, sold. Sold. Mm. And mm. his boss was Tom McDonald. Tom McDonald was autocratic... Mm. and a really difficult man to deal with by all accounts. Mm. And again, I just, I just find his story sad because um, he died very young. Right. Um, he died at the age of 53, and, and one, of, one of the people I interviewed for the book visited Dennis Kasha um, shortly before he died. And he told me that Dennis Kasha said that one of his great regrets in life that he was he didn't have enough time right. to make fine wines, mm. that he spent so much time making shite wines, mm. <laughs> you know, which they were. Wines for consumption. <clears throat> mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, the whole process of making those blended wines was not even ripen the grapes. Mm. Just pick them green, add sugar, use water to get rid of the acid, <laughs> It was a real criminal way for a guy like Kasha. Yeah, um, it would have been like total prostitution to yeah. his art. Yeah, no, not too pleasant. No. Uh, okay, oh, very good. And so, in your in your tripping around, are you um, are you much of a wine drinker yourself? Are, you, are there some sort of standout wines that you yeah, I'm certainly came across? A, I'm certainly a drinker, <laughs> but I'm not a connoisseur. No, sure. And I haven't well, got a particularly good palate. Right. But you, was there any, anything that you've come across in the Hawke's Bay that's um, sort of stood out for you? And, well, for, in fact, or, writing, or maybe writing, for, writing the book um, wasn't about – the book is not about the taste of wine. No. It's the stories to do with the wine. Yes. And when I interviewed the 50 or so people connected with the wine business, most of them the winemakers, unfortunately I didn't have enough time to – 
speak to the viticulturalists as much as I'd have liked to. Mm. Um, I didn't taste wine with them. We just talked. Mm. And in fact, a few on a few occasions where I was offered wine, I declined because I just didn't want to be compromised in any way mm. um, in writing the book. Yeah. And Keep your focus. Yeah, I didn't want to be. <laughs> ah. Yeah, especially <laughs> afternoon drinking, I yeah. can't, can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does limit the uh, productivity somewhat. Yeah, sense. but to ask, answer your question, um, there's no doubt that to taste some of the really well-made um, blended reds, Bordeaux blends, to you know, use, use the common word, are just a fantastic experience. Mm. Mm. And we've got some really good examples in, in Hawke's Bay mm. about the blended reds mm. but my palate actually goes more to the Gewurztraminer Riesling okay yeah which is what I really like and we've got some great Gewurztraminer makers in Hawke's Bay the most sort of legendary it's Kim Salonius mm-hmm. Israel winemakers he he got his vines I think he got his vines from um from Auckland from Dennis Irwin legendary Dennis Irwin um Certainly that's where Alan Limmer got his Gewürztraminer mm-hmm. vines because Alan told me that many, many years later he got a he got a call from Dennis saying, you know those vines I gave you? Well, I want some of them back. <laughs> <laughs> and that was no problem for Alan Limmer. There's, there's another fantastic sort of character in the, in the Hawke's Bay um, story because of his fight... Um, with with many others, of course. I mean, he credits John Buck hugely for putting the muscle in the finance and to save the Gimlet gravels. Right. <clears throat> and that's another story within itself. Yeah. Um, the G- Gimlet gravels are the flooded r- uh, river, the yeah, the riverbed of the Nadaroro River, which changed course, and I think in 1862. Mm-hmm. And if people know Hawke's Bay, the the Nadaroro used to roughly run down where Heratonga Street is and Havelock today, all the way to um, Havelock, right mm-hmm. through Hastings, all the way to Havelock, and then sort of take a sharp left turn and where the Karamu Creek is, and that changed course. And um, sort of, yeah, directly went over the Herotanga Plains and left this massive area of shingle mm. of gravels, mm. the Gimlet Gravels, named after the first purchaser of the land. Okay. And Alan Limmer was one of the first to build a vineyard there and plant, plant grapes. And then a quarry, a, a shingle company, um, wanted to quarry about a third of the entire area of the Gimlet gravels because of shingle extraction for road roading, I think, and um, the the council um, the council officers, the council bureaucracy supported, but the councillors didn't, and it was a huge case. And finally, it went on and on and went to the courts, and finally, it was decided that. It was better to grow grapes than rack the land. Oh, well, yeah. We're all very pleased about that uh, council decision or court decision. Yeah, well, it does does grow very good vines. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, um, uh, (coughs) you know, there's there's not a, well, I suppose there's there's a few, but it's one of the um, appellations that New Zealand has, doesn't it? You know, that um, somewhere like France has, has many of them. Um, we probably have a lot fewer, but Gimlet Gravels, I think, is um, probably what you could term an, an appellation because it's you know a, a smaller area that's known 
um, for that quality. Yeah, you're quite mm. right. Mm. Yeah, mm. I mean, it's interesting to go back to Brigato. He he recommended that New Zealand set up um, Appalachian control areas okay. on the French model mm. and predicted that that's what would happen. Mm. And so the Gimlet gravels, yes, it's a distinct area mm. and it grows some, some great wines, of course. But I must mention that probably the oldest and longest and most consistent Bordeaux blend is the Coleraine. Mm. Um, with um, Cap Seven Merlot um, blended um, pretty much by the same, same winemaker since 1984, Peter mm. Cowley, in association with John Buck, um, joint owners of Tamata Estate. Um, those grapes are not grown on the Gimlet gravels. No. But of course, other fine wines like the Sophia from. Um, um, Craggy, Craggy Range, yeah. and the Deer Stalker, I think it is from Sacred Hill, mm-hmm. or you know, huge awards and recognised. They are grown on the Gimlet Grim- mm. gravels, mm. and that Appalachian control now has extended to the Bridge Par Triangle, right? Um, and I think Tawonga, you can see, is a separate area mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. plus Tamata Havelock area, mm-hmm. all mm. all with different characteristics. Yes, yeah, yeah, which is yeah, which is lovely to see. Um, well, we're coming near the end of our, our time, Mark. So um, thank you once again for mm. um, for coming in and, and taking the time and talking to us. And but how do people how do people find the book if they're interested in reading more? Um, I think it's in bookshops mm-hmm. in Auckland. Mm-hmm. I think it's in bookshops throughout the country. But there is a website. Um, I think the website is Wine Stories from Hawkes Bay. <clears throat> and it can be bought online. Right, okay. Um, we'll have that link up on the um, next to the podcast as well, so if people are interested, they can, they yeah, can the, find it on there. Mm, and the best way is to visit Hawke's Bay, come down. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and um, two of the wineries, and most of the wineries have the book at the cellar door. Oh, well, yeah, well, yeah. that would um, that'd be a great way to do it. Yes. Yeah, really, really see where the stories are, all happened and bring it all to life. Yeah. Great place to visit. Yeah. Fantastic. Hey, thanks, Mark. Lovely having you on. Thank you, Boris. Cheers. We've been speaking with Mark Sweet, author of Wine, Stories from Hawke's Bay. You can find Mark's book online, as we mentioned. And if you'd like to hear more of the New Zealand Wine podcast, just look us up online. Thanks for listening. Hey, kona mai. Bye for now.